I never take for granted the privilege of preaching the Word. So whether you're here in person at the North Richmond Hills campus, whether you uh, ever watch uh, on video at the South Lake or West Fort Worth campus, or watch online every week, wherever you are and whoever you are, thank you for allowing me the privilege of sharing the bread of life with you. Now we're going to be in Acts chapter 6 in just a moment. This current series is titled Unleashed, and we're investigating what happened with the birth of the church, a birth that unleashed witness, a birth that unleashed boldness, generosity, power, and ministry. And the text we're going to read today is short and often overlooked in the grand scope of the book of Acts, but I think it is one of the most practical text in all of Scripture, and it's going to give you some real help today. And I'm going to begin with a story of a man who decided to join a monastic order, and it was a very strict order, so strict that you were only allowed to speak two words every ten years. So after ten years, he goes in to see the abbot, and he says, soup cold. After 10 more years, he sees the abbot and says, bed hard. And after 10 more years, he goes in to see the abbot and says, I quit. And the abbot replies, I'm not surprised. It has been nothing but complain, complain, complain ever since you got here. We all know that complaining Christians is not a new thing. We've all met believers who think they have the spiritual gift of whining. And let me just say, if you have a particular talent for whining, God would not mind if you buried that talent. Having said that, we also know that churches have real problems because... Churches make room for sinners. And if this church is not going to welcome sinners, then you and I might as well just get up and leave right now. As long as the church welcomes sinners, the church will have problems. And those problems can either increase misery or they can unleash ministry, as we're going to see in Acts chapter 6. But let me set the context first. The church is birthed and experiences rapid growth. And so God's adversary, we call him the devil, is going to try to stop what God is doing in this new thing called church. Now, Satan only has so many schemes. He just repeats them. The first was persecution. He had the apostles arrested, put in jail, and even physically beaten. All that did was make them more passionate and cause the church to grow faster. So he tried tactic number two that he still uses. He introduced corruption into the church and got people there to start lying. But that corruption was exposed by the Holy Spirit. The church was purified and all that did was make the church grow even more. So Satan went to his third and maybe most effective strategy 
to hurt the church, he introduced division. So let's read in Acts 6. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip. Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So once again, Satan's strategy is defeated. And all he's done is make the church grow more. And so before we can talk about unleashing ministry, we do have to talk a moment about this wonderful thing called church. And what I want to teach you this morning is very important, that the church is a mystery. And let me unpack that. Because one thing that is not different from their day and our day is that people still don't do different very well. We see this all across the globe. People don't do different well. We've seen the last months in our own nation, racial tensions surface in events like Ferguson. Or last week, we were reminded on our very best university campuses, bigotry still exists. And When I say we don't do different well, I'm not just talking about racial issues. The genocide in Rwanda was dark-skinned people killing dark-skinned people because their tribe was different. And the civil war in Yugoslavia was light-skinned people killing light-skinned people because their heritage was different. And you can go to any major city in this country today and someone that looks just like you might shoot you if you have a color on your clothing that says your gang is different. The world just doesn't do different well. And then God births a church. And it was always his intention that the church would embrace diversity. That the church would do different, differently. So that it might illustrate the message of reconciliation. That it might convince men that it is possible to be reconciled to God. Because we see people being reconciled to each other that we never thought would get together. And so the church takes that old idea of wall... And replaces it with the idea of all. And the New Testament word for this is mystery. 
For example, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Now, the world had never seen this. Jewish people and Gentile people in the same room, at the same table, and liking it. Look at that same verse from the message. The mystery is that people who have never heard of God and those who have heard of Him all their lives, what I'm calling outsiders and insiders, stand on the same ground before God. They get the same offer, same help, same promises in Christ Jesus. The message is accessible and welcoming to everyone across the board. This is what the church is to depict to the world. Because God knows the world will notice a mystery lesson. The world will notice when people can do different differently. They even notice it when animals do. I want you to watch this clip. It's a commercial made several years ago in Europe. The colonel was out when Scout and Paws realized he had unwelcome visitors. There's a new Sainsbury's pet food. Scouts for dogs and paws for cats. Carefully balanced to provide all the nourishment your pet needs to stay healthy, active, and remarkably alert. Okay, now some of you are going to ask me, does this mean cats can go to heaven? And the answer is only if they act like dogs, okay? (laughs) Do you see the subtle principle there? The advertiser knows the hook is when I can put things together that you would think would never go together, something powerful is going on. When the Spirit of Christ is around, You will find yourself around people you would not normally be around. One of the tragedies of the American church today is that too often the church leans in the direction of alienation instead of reconciliation. So you go to a church and everybody looks just like you and they dress just like you and they vote just like you and they want music just like your music and it doesn't present The mystery. It doesn't take the Spirit of God to form a clique. The world can do that on its own. The church is to do different. Differently. But embracing diversity is hard. And it comes with special challenges. And so the church is a mystery, but the church will always be messy. Messy because people in the church are messed up. Have you noticed this? It's why my friend Jeff Walling says we need a Messiah because we're so messed up. And it's not surprising that one of the first big messes in the church involved Differences. So 
so you have these two communities, the Hebraic-speaking Jewish Christians and the Hellenistic Jewish Christians. The Hebraic Jewish Christians had lived in the Holy Land their whole life. Everything about their cultural trappings was Jewish. And they spoke Aramaic. But in the dispersion, Jews had gone all over the world to live. In many different countries where they spoke Greek. Now, if you're one of those Jews, your heart's desire is when you retire to move to the Holy Land and die and be buried there. So you have many old people living in the Holy Land that did not grow up there. It's why you have so many widows in Jerusalem. And so you've got a lady, and she's a Greek-speaking widow. And she has real needs. And the church cared about the needs of the poor, especially the widows and the orphans. So they had this ministry where people would bring their money to the apostles' feet, and the apostles would distribute it to anyone that had need. We've already talked about that. But what's happening is that the church is just growing so fast that the administration of this benevolent program to widows is getting more and more cumbersome. So who do you think is going to fall through the cracks first? It's going to be that lady that doesn't have any extended family around who can't even speak the language And pretty soon, I'm going old school, she's going to feel like the third verse in a hymnal. Now, if you grew up in church singing out of songbooks, you all know what I mean. The song leader would always say, we're going to sing song number 272. We will sing the first, second, and fourth verse. The third verse was always in church, but nobody ever noticed. And that's how those widows felt. And the slight was unintentional. But the potential toxic impact was unimaginable. The very message of the gospel that we can do different, differently is at stake here. You want to talk about how relevant the Bible is? The question the church is facing is this one. Do people... Who were born in another country and speak another language. Belong here with us in our church. Is the church going to present a message of reconciliation? Or is the church just going to present a religious version of that tired old message of alienation that you could go anywhere in the world and get. The apostles saw how big this issue is. And so what they do is they propose the creation of a new ministry That will allow them to stay focused on evangelism. And what happens next is the biggest miracle in the book of Acts. The whole church liked the idea. That never happens. It had to be the Holy Spirit. Now remember, 
This whole situation was created because the church was growing. If you don't like mess in your church, go to a dying church. Dying churches are very quiet. And they get older and smaller every year. But if you want to go to a church where people are being reached for Christ, where they're coming from every cultural background, every racial background, with all different kinds of issues, if you want to go to a church like that, you better expect mess. And that's why we unleash ministry. Growth unleashes ministry, and ministry unleashes growth. Because unleashed ministry can bless the mess. So I want to share with you three principles now about what unleashed ministry looks like. And listen, this is bigger than church. This will work at your job. This will work in your family. Here's the first principle. We must think the best of one another. The church will always have problems because people have problems. But just because a person has a problem, that does not make them a problem person. And just because a person makes a negative observation, that doesn't make them a negative person. You have to learn the difference between constructive criticism and crankiness. Now, I get a lot of criticism. It just goes with the territory of being the leader of a church. The great majority of the criticism I get is very, very good. People who love me and want what is best for all of us. A very, very small part of the criticism I get is from people who just don't want to ever get happy. And so I have to learn to tell the difference. And here's what I've learned. Grumblers are not typically invested. Now, if you played football in high school, you know this truth. Maybe you're the quarterback, and there's always the person up in the stands who has all the answers, who is negative about everything that's going on. You don't listen to that person. But your tackle comes up, and his uniform is covered with mud and blood, and he is laying it on the line. And he says, that play you are running is not working. You listen to him, because he's in the game, and he's invested. And so were these people in Acts 6. They were good people, and they cared about these women. They had a legitimate concern. By the way, it's important to notice that the presence of strong leadership in a church does not guarantee the absence of problems in a church. You will never find a church that had a stronger elder board than the first church. The apostles were the elders, and it still had problems. But please notice, the existence of a problem in the church did not make people think that the leaders were problems. There's no call for repentance in that story. Because what the need was, was a better plan, not people with better hearts. So even when things were not the best, they still thought the best about one another. And that is a critically important piece of relational 
wisdom. So if you are about to get married or you have just gotten married, I'm about to lay something on you that's worth the whole trip here. In the first few years of our marriage, Jamie and I were constantly hurting each other's feelings and wondering, why would they do that if they loved me? You see, we came from different family systems. We had different love languages. And finally, Jamie discerned that usually if I hurt her feelings, it is because I am a clod. It is not because I woke up in the morning wanting to be a jerk. In other words, when I did, or even today, when I do something that she does not understand, she chooses to think the best about me and not the worst. And it's the number one thing we try to teach young couples. Because you cannot do good ministry with a bad attitude. Good ministry comes from good ministers. And that's why principle number two, we ask the best of one another. You see, for a long time, the way the church did ministry to widows was good. But it was no longer good enough. And that's why the church must always stay flexible. So that we don't preserve what was good in the past at the expense of what might be best in the present. And this is very easy to do. And here's why. Because we all have memories of something in the past that really connected to us. Where we experienced God. Maybe it was a certain style of worship. or Maybe it was a Sunday school class. Maybe it was a small group or a program at our church when we were young. And because we experienced God that way, we conclude that is the way everybody has to meet God from now on. And we calcify what was good in the past. And we don't have the courage to ask, but is there something in the present that might be better? And so the apostles didn't get defensive. They didn't say, well, that's always been good enough. Get over it. They said what was good in the past is not good enough now. And notice that they proposed an administrative solution. By the way, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, administration is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And some of you need to hear that because there is a popular tendency today to say, well, I just don't like organized religion. Well, what does that mean? I have been to the jails and I know who shows up. I know who's feeding the homeless in this city. I know who's building the orphanages and digging the water wells in Africa. And it's not unorganized religion. The Holy Spirit gifts the church, to organize itself to action so that good things can happen. But even more important than asking for the best program is asking for the best people. It's significant all seven of those names were Greek. Now think about that. The Hebraic Jewish 
power structure empowered the minority to be in charge of the new program. And even more important, the apostle said, just make sure that all these men are full of the Holy Spirit. Because ministry can never be unleashed as long as the wisdom and the guidance of the Holy Spirit is untapped. No ministry should be done without the help of the Holy Spirit. You don't want me preaching to you every week without the help of the Holy Spirit. But if you usher in this room and help people find a seat, if you work behind a camera or sing on a praise team, if you change diapers in a nursery or take teenagers on a mission trip or host a small group in your house or greet people when they walk in the door, you should be leaning on the power and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit too. All ministry should be spirit-filled ministry. The apostle said, just make sure you find men full of the Holy Spirit. So apparently you can tell when people are full of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, if you are full of the Holy Spirit, you don't have to tell people that you are. They will know. And spirit-filled people unleash ministry. Because ministry is more than just handling a task. Ministry is modeling a lifestyle. Spirit-filled people are servant-oriented people. And that leads me to the last and maybe most important point. To unleash ministry, we must want what's best for others. Now, this text is not saying some ministry is more important. The apostles weren't saying evangelism is more important than justice. We'll do the spiritual work and y'all do the less important physical work. No, spiritual needs and physical needs of people are both best. That's why the apostles use the same word. It's where we get our word deacon. They said, we're going to deacon the word. You pick some spirit-filled men to deacon the food, and we're going to deacon together to the glory of God. Because all spiritual ministry is about service to others. Spirit-filled ministry doesn't focus on a program. It uses a program, but it focuses on what is best for others. Okay, now listen real close for two minutes. I've done this a long time. I have been in hundreds of churches. And if you were going to ask me how to recognize a healthy church as opposed to an unhealthy church, there are a number of clues, but here's the biggest. A healthy church will have a culture of service where the people who are in that church seem to understand, I'm here to help somebody else. There will be a culture of service. An unhealthy church will have a culture of serve us. And the way to tell the difference is to listen. 
to what people complain about. In a healthy church, the complaint will be, we could do better. We can do better than we are doing to help other people. And in an unhealthy church, the complaint will be, you could do better to make sure I get what I want. Now, if you're a football fan, you recognize this picture. Vince Lombardi was one of the greatest coaches in the history of the National Football League. His name is on the Super Bowl trophy. He was known as a crusty, tough-as-nails coach. Lee Iacocca had a chance to interview him before he died and said, Coach, you know football, but all coaches know X's and O's. All coaches have an atmosphere of discipline. What makes a champion team? And old, tough Lombardi said something Iacocca did not expect. He said the missing ingredient in most teams is love. You have to care about your teammates more than you care about yourself. You have to think, I have got to make my block so that this guy doesn't kill my guy. And a champion team is a team where everybody is playing for someone else. Now, whether they know it or not, churches lean. They lean either in the direction of reconciliation or they lean in the direction of alienation. But the church is never more beautiful than when she does different, differently. That's one of the reasons last weekend was so special to me. I was inspired as I watched the thorn and their unique presentation of the greatest story ever. But I was just inspired as I watched the crowd and the cast. I saw the story of Jesus bringing together people from all over our city. I saw different races. I heard different languages. I saw people from different nations. I saw the cast and I saw people from different campuses and I saw different races and I saw different ages from the oldest to the very youngest all coming together to share Jesus. And it was beautiful. The very end of this little text we read is amazing. Satan tried to disrupt the church and its progress with division. It didn't work. All it did was cause more people to come because they did different well. And the last sentence says, and a great number of priests became obedient to the faith. Don't read that lightly. I'm a priest. I serve at the temple. I serve a religion that teaches a different way. That's where I get my paycheck. But I'm leaving to join the church. 
What does a priest do? A priest helps people get close to God. And the priest saw the church and said, they're doing our job better than we do it. And they changed teams. And the growth unleashed more ministry. And the ministry unleashed more growth. And God blessed the church with more messy people. Because he had more priests he could count on. There's this wonderful verse toward the end of the Bible in 1 Peter. You are a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So when you came to Christ, when you confessed his name, when you were baptized into his death and resurrection, did you know that you got a new job? You were now a priest. And your new calling is to help people get closer to God. So my challenge to you unleash the priest in you. When you go to work tomorrow, unleash the priest. When you go to school tomorrow, help someone get closer to God. And when you come to church every week, don't think serve us, but think serve us. Who am I going to hug? Who am I going to pray with? Who am I going to invite to my small group? What new friend am I going to make? Because I'm here to help people get closer to God. So I think we need an ordination service. I'd like everyone to stand, please. And I'd like you to hold up your right hand and repeat after me. I hereby accept my calling as a priest. So I am available to bless the mess. Okay, look at the people around you. They are a mess, okay? They're a mess. So for the next two minutes, I release you to go meet somebody and say, how can I bless your mess? Do that right now.